Okay, if you would please turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 17. I'll be reading <clears throat> Luke 17, verses 20 through 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Let's pray. Jesus, I am desperate to have the gift of your Holy Spirit operating through me as a teacher. And we're all desperate to have the work of the Spirit cause our minds this morning to be alert, awake, attentive, hungry to think and to have our hearts just be wonderfully bulldozed by Your ways. Do this to the glory of Your name, I pray. Amen. The kingdom of God is one of the major categories or topics in the New Testament. It is crucial for understanding Jesus' coming. His first coming, and still yet in the future, His second coming. The Gospel of Luke uses the phrase, the kingdom of God, 27 times. Matthew, a bunch. Mark, a bunch of times. And it makes all the sense in the world since the New Testament is about the kingdom of God's King, Jesus. This morning... The rule, the reign, the kingdom of God is present right here, right now, ever since Jesus' conception. And the most important question that any person in this room can ask is this, am I in the kingdom of God. Because if you have not entered the kingdom of God yet in your life, or you then never will enter the kingdom of God, then in the end, it will be like those who did not enter the ark with Noah. That's not my analogy. That's Jesus' analogy a few verses down. Notice, starting with verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. That's when Jesus comes back. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. Until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Now, in Luke 17, I'm convinced Luke intends for us to take the whole passage, starting with verse 20, all the way to verse 37, the end of the chapter, to take that whole passage as a whole with two distinct parts. We're only going to look at part one this morning. The first part is verses 20 to 21, where Jesus says in essence, don't go looking for signs, apocalyptic, cataclysmic happenings and manifestations for the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God, it's here. It's arrived. I, the King, am standing in front of you. In part two, he will go on to say, in the future, 
I will come again. And when I come again, you will see signs. There will be cataclysmic events to be observed when I come back. It's essentially what he says there in verse 24. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, everybody sees it. So will the Son of Man be in His day. It is second coming. Okay, so this morning we're, we're going we're to mainly concentrate on what is Jesus doing? What is He saying here in verses 20 and 21? Notice, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Okay, Jesus when is this kingdom of God coming? That question they asked on that day is loaded with the history of Israel. And at that time, not now, but at that time, with 1,700 years of expectation. And notice the Pharisees here are the ones that asked him the question. So they probably asked it with a snotty attitude. We, we, we don't see these great apocalyptic signs. For instance, like Daniel 7, which they knew very well. And behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not ever be destroyed. They know this. Jesus, when is this kingdom? We don't see this. Here's his answer. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is. Or, there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Okay, here's the question for this morning. What is going on? Let me start with a flyover, I mean with a, an Air Force jet, just really quickly, a flyover of redemptive history that leads up to the question that these Pharisees asked Jesus this day. God, the Creator, the Sovereign King, made mankind to rule benevolently, lovingly, for their good over them. Adam and Eve, trust me. Trust my kingship that I'm out for your good. Here, here, here's a little test. And see if, if you're on board with me to trust me as king. Of all the trees that I have made, Enjoy. Eat freely. Just, just one tree. Just one over here. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Trust that I'm out for your welfare. This one tree. Do not eat from it. Adam and Eve lived in glorious submission under the King. Until that day where they rebelled. And at that point, 
God's benevolent kingdom or God's benevolent rule over willing subjects ended. And we see right off the bat, God speaks, prophesies to the snake. One born of a woman, a human being is coming who's going to crush your head. Referring to Jesus. Then down the road of redemptive history, He calls a man, at a, er, a pagan named Abraham, and He makes a covenant with him that through you, Abraham, through you, your lineage, I'm going to bless the whole world. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, his name is changed to Israel. He has 12 sons. Those 12 sons accumulate and become many, many, many. And 400 and something years later, they are enslaved in Egypt. And God delivers His people out of Egypt. And brings them into the land He promised Abraham hundreds of years before. The promised land. In order that He would rule as king over them. And a couple hundred years later, when Samuel's the prophet, the people finally say, we're not satisfied with God who we can't see ruling over us as king. We want a king like all the other nations. God says, Sam, it's not about you, it's about me. i got a plan. Okay, let's go ahead and do it. And he gave him Saul, and it was a disaster and a flop. And after Saul, God called David to be king. Sinful man like all of us, yet a man after God's own heart. David had a son Solomon, and the kingdom of Israel started going downhill, and his son Rehoboam just pretty much whacked it all out. And that's the way it went, essentially, until God's judgment came down in exile. But while David was alive, God sent the prophet to him, giving this promise in 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish His kingdom. He shall build a house for My name and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And then that promise of God then rings throughout the subsequent prophets for the next 600 years, reiterating this promise of the Son of David is going to come. He's going to establish an everlasting kingdom. And it's said in various ways through the prophets. Well, then in history, 587, God's judgment comes and He banishes His people in exile. Seventy years later, they slowly matriculate back into the land. And for a period of the next hundred years, the post-exile prophets continue to prophesy, He's coming. Son of David's coming. Deliverance for God's people, Israel, from the hand of their enemies is coming when the King or the Messiah, the Anointed One, comes. And then with Zechariah, Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, 400 years of prophetic silence goes by. No more prophets. God's not speaking. 
Now, here's the real question. You don't just open up the New Testament and say, oh, we know, we, okay, we can read the Bible. That's what I understand the Bible to mean. And now the New Testament starts and skip those 400 years. Because what was happening during the intertestamental period between the Old Testament's closing and when an angel appears to Mary is theology was being birthed in ways it had never been. And theology concerning the end times. Eschatology. The coming of the kingdom of God that they saw in Scripture. And so they were making their charts like evangelical Christians make their charts. And not all those charts agree. I mean, some evangelical Christians who have only heard of a dispensational viewpoint through some movies or series of books called Left Behind, they have all, this is what's going to happen. And they run into another person who loves Jesus and I don't think it's going to happen like that at all. Okay. But, but what is it? That's theology that has been constructed. Well, during the intertestamental period, the Jews had differing theologies that are revolving around the kingdom of God, but if you kind of sum them up in a nutshell, they're looking for this eternal, divine type of heaven crashing down to earth and absolutely wiping out all the enemies as they see these promises in Scripture. No more sin, no more evil, no more being ruled over by others. And now at this time, by Rome, righteousness will reign Perfectly. Okay, this is what they're waiting for when they think about the Son of David. That's why you open the New Testament times, people will see Jesus and they'll cry out because they thought, okay, he's the guy, isn't it? Son of David, have mercy on me. Okay. Making sense? All right. So, after four centuries of prophetic silence, an angel appears to Mary in your womb. By the Spirit is the Son of God. God, the King, became a human being in the lineage of David to usher in the promised kingdom of God. After His birth, about 30 some odd years later, a voice in the wilderness by the Jordan River broke the 400 and something years prophetic silence saying, quote, Repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. A little bit later, Jesus began His public ministry According to Mark chapter 115 with these words, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And now we come to our text. The Pharisees ask Jesus, when is this kingdom coming? Jesus answers, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor they say, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So you got to get the picture. Jesus, when is this cataclysmic big bang of ushering in the kingdom of God and destroying our enemies? When is this new age arriving and coming? Answer, it's not coming like that. It's not coming with wild, visible, cataclysmic signs and events. Because the reality is, it's already here in your midst. That's what he answers. This baffled it did not fit any of their eschatological charts. It just didn't work. So here's the question. When Jesus says here 
the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, is He denying what the Old Testament prophets foretold about signs that will be observed? Like in the clouds of heaven, the Son of Man will come. The answer is no. Because when He says... The kingdom of God is not coming that way with these signs to be observed because it's in your midst. He is not referring to the second coming of Jesus or the consummation of the kingdom. He's referring to Jesus' first coming. When He truly, really, and powerfully, and spiritually ushered in the realm of God's saving reign. Otherwise known as the kingdom of God. He will go on to say just a few verses later, Oh, there is a day with signs. It's like the lightning from one end to the other. That's what it will be like when I, Jesus, the Son of Man, come back. So this for them, in the first century, during Jesus' ministry, for all the Jews, it was puzzling. And this is what is referred to in the New Testament as the mystery of the kingdom of God. Because the question just floats in the air, and it floats for us right now. Is the kingdom of God something in the future that we are to be anticipating and hoping for? Or is the kingdom of God something present right now that we are to be experiencing? The biblical answer to that question is yes. It has come. The presence of the kingdom of God was inaugurated with Jesus' incarnation. First coming. But, the kingdom's full-blown consummation with the eradication of all of God's enemies, and sin, and death, still even today, awaits the appearing again of the Son of Man. Awaits the consummation of the kingdom. In other words, as George Ladd put it, who did a lot of work on the kingdom of God back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, the tension in the New Testament is just read it and try to make sense of it is that the kingdom of God is now present. And it is at the same time, in another sense, not yet here. Let me just show that real well. Forget, I won't even say briefly, just for a moment. Our text is, is one text that shows, according to Jesus, the kingdom of God is now, it's here, it's present in his ministry. And there's a number of texts that say that. But so for Jesus says, don't we go looking for it? The kingdom of God is right here in your midst. And that translation, in your midst, is a good translation. Not the NIV's translation or the King James Version where they translate it. The kingdom of God is within you. It's not what he's saying. Grammatically, that's possible. Contextually, it's not. Jesus will not say to these hypocritical, blinded Pharisees, God's saving rule and reign is within inside of you guys. It's not what He's saying. He's saying the kingdom of God is present right now. I'm right in front of you. I'm the king. You don't need to go looking 
elsewhere. See, the implication of what he's saying right now to the, these Pharisees is what he has been saying throughout his ministry to them or about them. Blind. Can't judge the times that are right in front of them. Blind guides leading the blind. When's the kingdom of God coming, Jesus? It's not coming like that. The kingdom of God's right here in the midst of you right now. and You can't see it is the implication. This is the mystery about the coming of the kingdom of God. Jesus, the son of David, comes. He's ushering in the kingdom. And yet, he's not going to go to battle and wipe out Roman rule. Or set up his throne in Jerusalem or on earth and bring the kingdom. He's not doing it. Not yet. One day. He will. And we'll see that in Luke 17. What, another clear statement about the presence of the kingdom is what we saw back in chapter 11 of Luke when Jesus says, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then, here's the conclusion, the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus says, in my ministry, as I have come and I do battle by the Holy Spirit against the demonic forces of this world, it is a manifestation of the presence of the reign and the rule of God. And not just in His ministry, Jesus ushered in the kingdom. And He suffered, He died, and He was raised. And He went away. He ascended. But the kingdom, His reign, is present. So that the Apostle Paul could say a few decades later in Romans chapter 14 to the church, as he could say it to us today. For the kingdom of God, okay, he assumes now, you're in the kingdom of God, Christian. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus or in that way serves Christ in the kingdom is acceptable to God and approved by men. Okay, just, so there's a taste. The New Testament is clear about speaking about the kingdom of God as present here already. On the other hand... There are passages that make it clear that the kingdom of God is not yet here. Jump forward in Luke to chapter 19 for a moment. In chapter 19, starting with verse 11, Jesus tells a parable in order to make the point that the kingdom of God is not yet here. Start with verse 11. As they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable. Why? Because He was near Jerusalem and because they, the people, supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So He told them a parable. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive a kingdom. And then he returned back home. So Jesus here is nearing Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem. The people thought, it's about ready to come. He's going to make a move on the power structures politically and set up the kingdom, set up his kingship, set up his throne. That was the common idea about the Messiah, about the son of David. It would come with signs and wonders that would result in the destruction of all of Israel's enemies. But Jesus tells the parable, to say, no, 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 no. That's not going to happen. Not yet, anyway. That'll happen in the future. So he tells the parable. 
A nobleman goes into a far country to receive a kingdom. He does. He returns. Trust me. God the Son left and went to a far country called humanity and became one of them. He suffered. He died. He was raised from the dead. After five weeks of teaching post-resurrection, and he returned, sat at the right hand of the Father. And as the parable is going to go on, he's coming back. And he's coming back in a different way in the future. So in that way, Jesus teaches, no, the kingdom of God is not yet. There'll come a day when the king comes back and he will establish his rule. I just get a taste in Matthew 7 about the future of the kingdom where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, will enter the kingdom. It's, what do you mean? Are we in the kingdom or not? No, this here is future. There's a future kingdom. You will enter the kingdom or you will not enter the kingdom in the future. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day in the future, he will say, It's future. Matthew 25, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, referring to Himself, and all the angels with Him, then, in the future, He will sit on His glorious throne. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom. Wait a minute, are we in the kingdom? Have we inherited it? Not in this sense. It's still future. Or Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, I tell you, church, flesh and blood, okay, that's every one of us in here. We have blood plump, pumping through our veins. We are living in our mortality. Our bodies are dying. Okay, that's what he means. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God but I thought I was in the kingdom. No, not, not in this sense. Not in that future aspect of the kingdom. All right, so what we see as a whole here in the New Testament and particularly in Jesus' ministry in the Gospels is that the kingdom of God has come. It's present in the world and we see the coming of the kingdom is still future. This was puzzling to them. The Pharisees, what are you talking about? John the Baptist was taken off guard. You remember? He's rotting in prison. Send some of his stuff. Go ask him. I'm just ask him. I guess I must have missed it. Are you the one or not? Why am I still in prison if you're coming to destroy all our enemies? Baffled him. This tension about Jesus' ministry and bringing in the kingdom that is present, yet it's still not yet, caused one crowd in a synagogue to want to throw him off a cliff. It caused another crowd down by the Sea of Galilee to want to put a crown on his head and make him king. It frustrated the heck out of Pilate where he says, fine, so you, you are a king. And on Sunday afternoon after he was murdered on a cross, his disciples say, but we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Evidently not. The cause of all this confusion that we see in the New Testament with these people is what Jesus called the mystery of the kingdom of God. Or the secret. It's the Greek word, mysterion. And in Luke and in Mark, but much more extensively, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus unfolds the mystery with what are called kingdom 
parables. What is mysterious about the kingdom is that it has come partly in a spiritual sense, but not fully like you see in so many of the Old Testament prophets. There are hints in the Old Testament about this two comings, like Isaiah 53 with the suffering servant of David's son, Jesse's son, Jesse, David, Jesus. But the Old Testament clearly was not explicit when you read it. There's two comings of the son of David. It's not there like that. There are just hints. As you read the Old Testament prophecies about the coming of the kingdom, it just looks like this one big, huge, great day of God's kingdom, heaven rule, crashing down to earth, creating a new heavens, a new earth where righteousness dwells. And so, let me just for a moment, before you leave Luke 17, in our context of Luke, those two things are right there. Look again at verse 24. Jesus will go on to say, For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, every eye will see it, so will the Son of Man be in His day. He's coming that way. Now, what's the very next thing He says? But first, He, the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. That's why He says it's not happening that way this time, guys. So this is what is called, when Jesus comes, the anticipation of the prophecies of the kingdom is being fulfilled with His coming. Fulfillment without consummation. And that's what he goes on to explain in these parables in Matthew 13. So let's taste a few of them. Start with verse 11 for a moment to set up the context. Matthew 13, verse 11. Jesus answered them to his disciples, To you it has been given to know the secrets that's the word mysterion, or mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, non-disciples, it has not been given to know. Look at verse 16. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets of the Old Testament and righteous people in the past longed to see what you see. And they did not see it. And to hear what you are hearing, meaning with me, Jesus. And they did not hear it. In other words, he's saying, you are seeing the fulfillment of things they long to see. The coming of the kingdom. And they didn't see it. You see it. And there's all kinds of other people around you who don't see it. That is the mystery of the kingdom. That was not expected by anybody. I mean, the kingdom would come and not everyone will know it? Yes, and that's the mystery. Jesus says it's here. But the way in which it's here is a mysterion, a mystery. And that's what the parables here in Matthew 13 are illustrating. So just briefly, look at, start with verse 18. Jesus has just told the parable of the sower. It's a parable of the kingdom, right? And now he starts to unpack it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, and then he goes on to describe four different responses or things that can happen when the word of the kingdom goes forth. For instance, the word of the kingdom can be snatched out of a person's heart. Or the troubles of the world 
can cause that person to fall away. Or the cares and the anxieties of worldliness can choke the Word. Or good soil, the Word of the kingdom bears good fruit in some. And why is that a parable of the kingdom describing the mystery of the kingdom? Because no one expected the kingdom to come and have those differing kinds of effects. They expected the kingdom to come and just sweep the entire world, separate the evil from the good, and there's none of this like in between or anything. That was the mystery Jesus is describing to them. The power of the kingdom of God is here to save some. But others, even who are confronted with the kingdom, And it's preaching will remain unchanged, will not enter the kingdom, won't be converted by it. That's a mystery to them because that dynamic was not expected. Or look at the parable of the wheat and the weeds, starting with verse 24. Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in a field. Then he goes on to say how another came by and sowed weeds among the good seed, among the wheat, and they grow up together. And Jesus says, that's a picture of the kingdom. No one expected. Look at verse 37. He goes on to interpret the parable. The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age. And the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of this age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. This is the mystery of the kingdom. A kingdom existing for a period of time where the righteous exist alongside of the unrighteous was never expected. The kingdom of God was supposed to come in one fell swoop and absolutely separate the good from the evil forever. But here, Jesus says, that final separation of that harvest still awaits the coming of the Son of Man the second time. Or look at the parable of the mustard seed in verse 31. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, a little tiny little seed, that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He says the mystery of the kingdom is that it's come like a little seed secretly planted in the soil. It didn't come with a king riding on a great white horse to slay all his enemies. Jesus will come back that way. But not yet. It's a seed. One day it will be the consummated kingdom. 
It will be that great, big, huge tree. But not yet. One more. The parable of the gnat in verse 47. Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, the men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The mystery of the kingdom according to this parable is that its presence It's preaching down here on earth in this age. Sweeps all kinds of people into its influence. Good and bad fish. Only when the net is finally drawn up onto the beach, meaning at Jesus' second coming, Only then will they be perfectly separated. And notice in this parable, the separation is not between those who are caught up into the kingdom and those who aren't. In this parable, it is between all those who are caught up into the influence or sway or because of the gospel of the kingdom does exist. It moves them on this earth To become parts of churches. Part of Christendom. And then that net of the kingdom of God at the end. There will be separation between those who were genuine. Who were genuinely under the saving king. And those who are not. The separation awaits the end at Jesus' second coming. So that's what Jesus is doing with the parables to try to explain, which he knows they're just not going to get until down the road after his resurrection and a lot of more teaching he'll have to do because no one expected it. And the point is that the kingdom of God is present. In His ministry, it's present today, and it is still not yet. It is still also future. There has been fulfillment without consummation. And this is the mystery of the kingdom. And that's why Jesus can say in our text, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Or they say, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In other words, you don't need to go looking anywhere else, here or there. It's right in front of you. But the display and comprehensive power of that kingdom has not happened yet. It will come visibly with signs to be observed one day, which Jesus goes on to lay out next week. So as I close then, okay, I know that was a lot teaching, which I'm supposed to do, but here's the question as I close. How is this practical for my life? How is knowing the difference between the presence of the kingdom and all the other aspects of the kingdom that are not present but await Jesus' second coming, how does that come into play in my life? Here's one way. Right now, in your lives... Your work life, your family lives, living in this culture, your health, your body life. 
sum parts of the curse of the old age, of the misery of the old age, can be overcome. Let me just give you the main one. It's the main thing the presence of the kingdom has been doing for 2,000 years. If you have actually been regenerated by the Spirit, your old man, born into sin and a hard heart that could not love God, and now you do through the gospel, that was the power of the kingdom radically overcoming the old age in your old self. As Jesus said, unless a person is born again, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. But there are tastes of other stuff. Jesus was manifesting the kingdom with healing people physically. With having power and authority or over demonic realm, which is still here. You can, if you're a person in the kingdom, experience in part tastes of overcoming the misery of the sin wrought evil age in which we In other words, Jesus' coming, His life, His substitutionary death, and His resurrection won the decisive battle against Satan and sickness and death. And all of those things have been fought by our King, and He won. Victory over sickness. Your sinning, physical death is assured for every believer. But you'll never come into the fullness of those until the second coming altogether. Now, what that means now for every believer living in their mortality is that the war is not over because Jesus won the decisive victory. Jesus' cross was like D-Day in the spring of 1944. It took a lot of ally blood to storm the beaches in France, Normandy, in order to just keep coming and keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. And we knew it was going to take thousands of deaths in a day in order to finally push the Germans back and to get a beachhead. And once we succeeded at doing that, everyone who knows anything about war knows we won the war. We just have to go ahead and finish it now. It was not in doubt, but they still had to send people over like my dad and continued to march through France and into Germany, and it took about a year. The decisive battle was over. Germany knew it, and the Allies knew it. Now we just got to go see how many people are going to have to die to do it. There is a battle in every Christian life. We must fight sin daily. Satan must continually be resisted in demonic influence and untruths and deceptions and false doctrine and sickness and disease must be prayed over and often groaned under. As Paul put it in Romans 8.23. And not only the creation... But we ourselves, believers, 
who are in the presence of the kingdom, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait. And we're still waiting. We wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our body. Flee from horrific word of faith doctrines and teachers. Flee from those who in the name of Christ say, Jesus purchased all your healing and it's absolutely available now and He wants to do it. And if you're not healed, it's because of you. Flee over-realized eschatology. Divine health. Eradication of sin and mortality and death is not available. Healing is. God does what He wants. But all of those await the consummation of the kingdom. Oh, how so many Teachers and professing Christians fail to understand the mysteries of the kingdom. Death must still be endured for all of Jesus' people who are presently in His kingdom. It's going to be endured until His second coming. This is how the Holy Spirit says it according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive one day. But each in his own order. Christ, Jesus, the first fruits. There's only been one human being ever resurrected from the dead. And that's Jesus, the first fruits. Then, at His coming, second coming, those who belong to Christ, they will all be raised from the dead just like He was 2,000 years ago. Now listen to Paul. Then comes the end when He, Jesus, delivers the kingdom of God. When He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power because He, Jesus, even now must reign as King until He has put all His enemies under His feet. And then the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So here's the question. Are you in the kingdom of God right now? Is King Jesus your Savior? Okay. If that's true, here's the admonition. Manifest that. By battling against your sin. Battling against your flesh. Manifest it in a wartime mentality. Draw near daily to your King by the gift of God the Holy Spirit who dwells within you and the Word of God who speaks to you in the pages of of Scripture. Take up the whole armor of God and fight daily to find your satisfaction in Him and in His promises. And don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as those who belong to the kingdom 
and show themselves physically in this world in the local church. But as an army, not as a lone ranger, encourage one another every day with truth, with compassion, with hand-to-hand combat against deceptions and laziness and worldliness and bitterness and discouragement. Kingdom people fight together in the trenches of this very bloody war of the Christian life. They fight together against the enemy of not placing our hope and our trust no matter what may come in God's promises. Jesus has come and secured the victory. Christ has come. Christ has been raised from the dead. And Christ, the Son of Man, the King, is going to come again and consummate it all. Let's just sing to this King with all our hearts.